Oaks at Prairie View Christian Church this morning. It's five weeks exploring some of the most series called Tough Questions. And we're going to spend the next five weeks exploring some of the most difficult questions that people today have about the Christian faith. Now, the truth is that many of these questions have been asked for centuries. We're not the first people to wrestle with questions like these, but some of these questions are, in fact, newer. And some of the answers that we come to may not be sufficient for everyone in the world in which we live. But for many people, these are the questions that keep them up that that night. These are the questions they wrestle, wrestle with as they think about the world in which they live, as they think about the claims that Christianity makes. These are the questions that we find ourselves talking about as we sit in neighborhood coffee shops, as we take classes in a university lecture hall, or maybe we even just talk about these questions with our family sitting around the dinner table. But these questions are the questions that many people credit with being the sole reason they object to the Christian faith. Many people look at these questions and they say, this is why I cannot be a follower of Christ. This is why I cannot be a believer. Other people don't so much credit these questions as their primary reason for rejecting Christ. Other people just try and avoid these questions entirely because deep down they're afraid of where these questions might lead them. Some of these people may be in this room as we speak. But we as Christians owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the world to discuss hard questions like these openly, honestly, and humbly. We owe it to the world and to ourselves to not be scared of these questions, to not shame or alienate the people who wrestle with these questions. And of course, we as followers of Jesus should never be embarrassed or shy about the answers that we come to, even if some skeptics out there are not always convinced. That brings us to where we are today. The first question of the sermon series, can there really be only one true religion? Can there really be only one true religion? Should Christians really claim that there is only one way to salvation? Should Christians really claim that all paths do not lead to the same summit? In a world where inclusivity is one of the highest virtues, should Christians continue to make exclusive claims about our God and exclusive claims about our faith? As we wrestle with that question, open your Bibles to Genesis 1. This will be on page one if you're using one of our chair Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we read Genesis 1, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word that we can open when we wrestle with difficult questions that the world throws our way. Many of these questions are important. Many of these questions are very serious. Many of us will wrestle with these questions at one point in our lives or maybe at multiple points in our lives as we continually seek out your truth. God, I pray this morning as we read your word, we can come to some conclusions about what you have to say about whether or not you truly are the one true God. I pray that we would read your word humbly 
that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are open to your truth and to your guidance in a really difficult subject. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. All right. Well, this question, can there really be only one true religion? Why is this question so commonly asked? Well, there's probably a variety of reasons people ask this question. One reason is that maybe you meet someone of a different faith, and that person is moral and kind, intelligent, caring. And as a result, you find yourself thinking, can I really tell this person that their entire belief system is wrong? After all, these people pay their taxes They do the right thing. They raise their kids with good values. They make good contributions to society. Can I really look them in the eye and tell them that their entire belief system is off base? And even more specifically than that, can I look that person in the eye and tell them that in spite of how moral they appear or in spite of how many good values they instill in their children, that in reality, they are a sinner, They are in need of God's grace, and it can only be received by faith in Jesus. And that if they do not worship Jesus, they will spend eternity in hell. Can I really look that person in the eye and tell them that when they appear to be so good and so upstanding and so kind and intelligent? That's a tough question. Maybe the second reason that we wrestle with this question is because we don't want to offend or alienate people of different faiths. Now, to be honest, that isn't all bad. After all, if you're a Christian and you find pleasure in being rude to people of different faiths, and you find pleasure in making them feel very awkward and very unwelcome because of their faith, you're not doing the cause of Christ any favors. It can be a very good thing to be sensitive to other people's beliefs. And the truth is that none of us wants to be accused of being bigoted or closed-minded. Do we really want to be that person to rock the boat in a world where intolerance will not be tolerated? Another tough question. And then finally, maybe reason number three, deep down we just want everyone to get along. Kind of like the coexist bumper stickers on cars. Now, some of you may have heard me say this before, but those stickers are great if we're talking about people of different faiths being kind and showing respect and dignity to each other and agreeing to not kill each other. If that's what that sticker means, then slap one on my bumper, by all means. But, unfortunately, it seems that the message of those stickers is far bigger than that. The message of those stickers seems to be All of these gods are valid. All of these gods are true. And if you think it's right for you to worship this God or that God, then that's right for you. And who are you to tell someone else they're wrong? And who is someone else to tell you that you're wrong? And while it's a good thing to expose yourself to people of different faiths and appreciate their unique contributions to society... And it's a good thing to not get a kick out of hurting people's feelings who disagree with us. And it's a good thing to want peace and respect amongst those who disagree. 
All those things are good. At the same time, Christians must look to what Scripture says about God before we say that all paths lead to the same summit or before we put that coexist sticker on the bumper of our car. So with that, let's open up by reading Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5, seeing what Scripture has to say to this question. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. What we see in Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, is that God creates everything. He creates the space. Before he spoke everything into existence, there's nothing there. He brings it up just by talking. He creates the entire environment in which you and I live. Everything around us, everything that we see, God creates it because he creates the space. But he doesn't just create the space. He creates the things that will inhabit the space. That includes things like animals and trees and different kinds of plants and birds and fish. All these living things that will inhabit this space. But then he goes even further. He creates man. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates all of this stuff, birds, plants, animals, everything you can think of. God creates it all, but then he creates man. And man is qualitatively different from anything else that God creates because man is created in his image. God creates the space. God creates the people who will inhabit it. And then we see the next thing he creates in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. Not only does God create the space, not only does God create the people and the things that will inhabit the space, but God creates the rules. You could look at it like a game. God creates the playing field, God creates the players, and God creates the rules of the game. Every part of it, he creates. Okay, so what? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, and in the entire Old Testament, and really in all of Scripture, credit is given to God alone for creating everything that we see. No one else gets any credit for doing the things that God has done. Now, there are other creation stories out there from ancient history, other creation stories from ancient faiths, but our creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 Is very clear. Our God, the one true God, 
creates everything. No one else creates everything. No one else gets the credit. God alone gets the credit. Now, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's hard not to mention the debate about a passage like this. When this all happened, details about how this all happened. But the truth is that maybe the most important point is not when everything was created or how everything was created. Maybe the most important point is who created it. We can take a passage like this and we can see very clearly the claim that the Bible makes that no other God created the universe. This God created the universe. He existed before creation. He spoke creation into being. He sustains creation to this very day. This God does all those things. No other God does. Another passage to consider is Exodus chapter 20. As we encounter this passage, God's people were slaves in Egypt. They had heard stories about how God chose them to be his people long ago, but none of them had ever really heard from him for quite some time. So when God frees them from their captivity through a man named Moses, he brings them across the Red Sea to safety from Pharaoh's armies. God then reintroduces himself to them in Exodus chapter 20. Let's read verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So right after God brings them out, right after this incredible scene at the Red Sea, the first thing God tells his people, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. God makes it very, very clear from the very beginning that his people worship him and him alone. Why? Because he's the only true God. It's that simple. We keep reading in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first thing, no other gods before me. The second thing, no images. Do not worship images. Because no image that you can create with your hands will ever do God justice. No God that you or I or they back then could possibly form in our imaginations could ever do God justice. Those gods aren't real. It's like God is saying to his people that those images that you are surely going to be tempted to worship, those images didn't create everything you see the way I did. They didn't free you from captivity in Egypt. Remember that? It wasn't that long ago. I'm the one who did that. I did all of these things. I am the one true God. 
So give your worship to me. Don't give your worship to them. What we clearly see is that God is not willing to share his well-deserved honor and glory with any other gods. That Exodus 20 passage says that God is a jealous God. We see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Shortly after this time passed, the Israelites would wrestle with that temptation to elevate other gods before the God who freed them from Egypt. They would wrestle with that temptation to worship images or worship these false idols. And Jeremiah addresses that in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak, for they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He sums it up in verse 11. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. We clearly see that God is telling his people, Jeremiah is telling his people, that these images that you're tempted to worship, these idols that you're tempted to honor and glorify, they're just as real as the scarecrow out protecting your crops. They're not capable of doing anything. They can't walk, they can't talk, they can't do good, and they can't do bad. And yet our God created everything. Who do you think you should worship? Is what Jeremiah is saying. God is not willing to share his honor and share his glory. And this is not because he's just some selfish toddler who doesn't want to give up a toy. He doesn't share his honor and his glory because he alone deserves honor and glory. Jeremiah says that worship is his due from every single person he has created. Any other God being honored and glorified, it's a perversion of the created order, according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes it very, very clear. There is only one God who created everything. He created the playing field, the players, and the rules. 
And he alone deserves our worship, and he is not content to share our worship with any other sham of a God. But what does the New Testament tell us? What does Jesus have to say on the subject? After all, he's usually more politically correct about this kind of thing, right? Well, let's turn to John chapter 14. After Jesus spends some time talking about going to the presence of the Father, he tells his disciples that, One day, they're going to be there too. And when Thomas hears this, he's confused. He doesn't understand how they're supposed to get there. He knows that Jesus is going somewhere, but Jesus is not giving him any directions. He doesn't have a map. He's not sure what to type in on his GPS. So Thomas asks a question. How do we get there? And Jesus responds in John 14, 6 and 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus gives clear, simple directions. You don't have to have a map, you don't need a GPS. You don't need to worry about looking for certain landmarks and knowing where you need to turn. Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, not one of several ways. The truth, not one of several different subjective truths. The life, not one of many options to life. Jesus is the way that God has provided for eternal salvation. Peter makes that clear in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus made it clear, I am the way. The early church made it clear, I am the way. They reaffirmed the words of Jesus. But then Paul even gets in on the action in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As he discusses whether or not it's sinful for Christians to eat meat that has been offered to other gods in some kind of ritual, we read this in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Just like Jesus, just like Peter, Paul does not pull any punches. He makes it clear those idols that you're offering these food sacrifices to, those idols aren't real. He refers to them as so-called gods. Because for Paul, there is only one true God, by whom and by for rather, excuse me, by whom and for everything and everyone exists. And this one God has given one Lord, Jesus Christ, the same Lord who said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. 
Now, some people might have read Paul's letter to the Corinthians and said, now, wait a minute, Paul. Isn't that kind of arrogant for you to make that kind of claim? Isn't it kind of closed minded for you to say that all of our idols are fake, that none of our gods are real, that our rituals are pointless and empty? Who are you to say that? What kind of exclusive claim on truth do you have? What makes you so confident of this? I would imagine Paul would have probably responded, "Okay, you want proof that the God I worship is the one true God. You want proof that the Jesus I serve is the one true Lord. Go look at that tomb in Jerusalem. At one time, Jesus was in there. He was on a cross. He really died. He was buried. And then a few days later, he got up and walked out. You want to know why I'm so confident to make this kind of claim that Jesus is the one true Lord? He rose from the grave. That's why I can make a claim like that. And ultimately, that is the key issue for us as followers of Jesus. Do we believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Now, when you put the Old Testament and the New Testament together, you end up coming to a pretty firm conclusion. The one true God revealed in human form through his son, Jesus, demands and deserves our exclusive allegiance. He is the only legitimate God. And if we believe differently, we cannot claim to take the Bible seriously. And because of Jesus' own words about himself, if we believe differently, we cannot claim to take Jesus seriously either. In a famous part of his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, I am here trying to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great and moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If Jesus really did rise from the grave, then we worship the one true God and no other gods can be legitimate and no other gods can be true. Tim Keller writes about getting together with faith leaders from different major world religions and the conclusion they all agreed on, even though these leaders disagree on a whole lot of other stuff. They agreed that if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. 
That's really the hinge of it all. If Jesus rose from the grave, he is the one true Lord. And God is the one true God. And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we've got it all wrong as followers of Jesus. So, as Christians, as people who make exclusive claims about God, what do we do now? In a world that wrestles with this question, in a world where people often expect Christians to kind of lighten up a little bit on the exclusive claims, to kind of back off the bold statements that we sometimes make, what are we called to do? Well, a few suggestions. Number one, embrace the doubting. Embrace the doubting. If we believe Christianity to be true, if we believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we don't have to be afraid of difficult questions. Because even when all the answers to these difficult questions aren't crystal clear, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is alive. So we don't have to be scared of difficult questions. Along with embracing the doubting, we can be willing to walk alongside those who are doubting. We can listen to people's questions about our faith seriously. We can listen to them respectfully and share the reasons why we ourselves believe. We embrace the doubting, but we're also called to be humble. We're not saved because we're obviously just a little bit smarter than all the people out there who chose other religions. We made the right choice. They made the wrong choice. I guess they're just not as smart as I am. That's not how it is at all. We are saved purely by the grace of God. That means there is absolutely no place at all for arrogance or rudeness to those who do not believe what we do. We're called to be humble because we are saved by God's grace. Another way we can be humble is by being honest when we don't have much of an answer for one of these difficult questions. Maybe one of the most beneficial things we as followers of Christ can do when someone asks us a hard question, someone who is skeptical of our faith, maybe one of the best things we can do is just simply and humbly say, I don't know. That might go a long way, believe it or not. Number three. We're not only called to be humble, we're called to be kind. The one true God we worship is the same God who sent his son to die for his enemies. Thus, we have absolutely no excuse at all to be violent towards or to harass people of different faiths who don't agree with us. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our kindness and our humility towards those who do not believe in Jesus can help or hurt the cause of our church and the cause of Christ. So be kind. And number four, evangelize. Because if all this stuff in the Bible is true, one true God demanding the allegiance of all people, providing Jesus as the way of salvation and punishing those who reject Jesus. If all that stuff is true, 
then we should never be scared to share that message. That should be the absolute top priority to share that message with those who don't believe. And in the big scheme of eternity, having that conversation that some people think is awkward, that some people think is even offensive, can actually be the most loving thing a Christian will ever do. So evangelize. And as we do all these things, we look forward to the future. We look forward to the day when Philippians 2, 9 and 10 will become a reality. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That all of creation will know that there really is only one God. That there really is only one Lord. We look forward to that day when God receives the glory and the honor and the worship that only he deserves. Because our God is not like any other God. Our God provided Jesus as the only way of salvation. G.K. Chesterton writes, It is really the collapse of comparative religion that there is no comparison between God and the gods. There is no more comparison than there is between a man and the men who walked about in his dreams. The other gods that exist... The other gods that many people worship and many people demand we worship as well. They are just as real as the people that you and I dreamed about last night. We cannot compare our God to any other. He's not the same. Our faith is not the same. We worship one God and we worship one Lord. That is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that is the Lord who died on the cross and rose from the grave. Let's not be scared to worship him and him alone. Let's not be shy about worshiping him and him alone. Because he is not the same as any other God out there. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that your word makes it so clear what you expect of us, that you are the only God worthy of our worship and worthy of our honor. And God, I pray that we would worship you above every other God in this world. The other gods that often call out to us that people want us to worship and people want us to validate, those gods aren't worthy of our worship and they aren't worthy of our validation because only you are God. God, the idols that we're tempted to worship sometimes aren't the traditional or abstract. Things like wealth or success or good health. God, I pray that we would reject those gods as well and offer you our exclusive worship. Thank you for providing Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. That we don't have to be confused about your solution to the problem of our sin. Your solution to the problem of our sin is Jesus' cross and Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' perfect life. We thank you for all of those things and we look forward to Jesus' return. In the meantime, God, may we faithfully preach your good news and share that message with anyone and everyone out there. May we not be shy to share that message with those who disagree with us. 
May we not be shy, even when people accuse us of having to have it our way or the highway, because we can live with that accusation if it means people come to know you as Lord. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the calling that you've given us and the privilege that we have of knowing and worshiping the one true God. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.